0: Welcome back, everyone. This week, a conversation with Neil Walker, recently retired after a 12-year Major League career. Although you'll hear how hard that word, retire, actually is to say, given the decision wasn't entirely voluntary, more a circumstance of the game, and the things every player has to deal with at some point. Walker had a very successful career, going from a first-round draft pick to playing second base for his hometown Pittsburgh Pirates, where he spent the bulk of his career. He later stopped in New York with both the Mets and the Yankees, and then briefly in Milwaukee, Miami, and Philadelphia. Walker was part of three playoff teams in Pittsburgh, and one with the Yankees. His career arc is quite interesting because he grew up watching baseball in the steroid era, was drafted in the testing era, and saw his big league career play out through the analytic revolution in the StatCast era. Plus, he had the added perspective of being a second-generation big leaguer. Neil's father, Tom, was a pitcher in the 1970s who spent time with the Expos, Cardinals, Angels, and Tigers in parts of six Major League seasons. All of that framework gives Neil Walker a really good perspective on how the game has changed and how it just got harder to be a hitter in the batter's box. Neil and I also spoke about the highs and lows of his career, And for Yankees fans, a few thoughts on his former Pirates teammates, Garrett Cole and Jameson Tyone. And the Walkers have a wonderful and emotional connection to Roberto Clemente that many of you have probably heard, but if you haven't, or even if you have and you want to hear it again, please stick around for the end of this podcast as Neil recounts the magical details for us. It's truly a special story. Here is my conversation with Neil Walker. So Neil, I guess the first thing off the bat is it's mid-April, and you're not in a big league uniform for the first time in a long time. So your status as a big league player is what?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, my uh, my 12 plus uh, seasons in,
1: in the big leagues and uh, you know seven plus seasons in the minor leagues are are done. So um, you know this is the, really the first uh, the first conversation I've had with a with media or with somebody that uh, I've said that I'm, I'm, I'm done playing. And, um, you know, I stayed, I kept in shape through, through spring training to kind of see if, if an opportunity might, might pop out of, uh, one of the camps, if there was some injuries or so on and so forth, and that didn't happen. And, uh, so once opening day kind of rolled around, I, I, I kind of decided, um, you know, I'm good. Uh, so I, I feel like I've had a, had a good run. I feel really fortunate to have played for some great organizations and in some great places. And, um so many good coaches and so many good teammates and you just kind of reflect on on what that all means to you uh, in terms of a of a baseball career so more than anything I feel incredibly fortunate to have played the game at the at the highest level for as long as I did and and uh you know to be able to to do things like play in my hometown for as long as I did and be a part of some really good teams in in, in a lot of different stops so uh you know, I, I, I have no regrets in in my career and and I feel really fortunate about that. And, um, you know, looking forward to the next chapter of my life, I have two young, two young kids and, um, you know, I, I found myself in, in the, uh, uh, in the mornings, in the, in the, in the line at school with, with all, with the rest (laughs) of the the mom and dads. and, And that's certainly a change of pace, but it's something that I've kind of looked around and been like, yeah, I've been missing out on things like this and, and I've been very
0: fortunate. So, um, very, very, very happy with where where I am right now. I, it's funny, and I don't mean to make light of this, but I'll, I'll let you talk about this. You didn't say the R word. It's it's pretty hard. Um, yeah, you're retired. How hard is yeah. it to actually say it? Yeah, you, you know what? It's funny
1: because you don't. At least for me, I've uh, I haven't been avoiding it, but you know, most of the conversations I had up until you know, I kind of set a soft deadline in my brain of like. Okay, opening day. So April first, we'll call it. And and as we're creeping towards there, people are kind of like, "Well, what's going to happen?" And, you, and and you're you're right though. I I, I never wanted to be like, "Ah, oh, you know, I'm retired." I'd always say like, "Well, I'll probably be done if we get to this point." Or or I don't know. We'll see. Maybe something pops up in early April. But you know, so there. Yeah, you're right. I, I, <laughs> to 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 say it is really to take that book and close it and put yeah. a lock on it. But like I said, I. I'm really, I'm really fortunate of, of, uh, how things went in my career and, and, uh, and, and especially in comparison to, to, uh, you know, how long a lot of players are, are playing nowadays, it seems like the careers are kind of getting shorter and shorter and not for really any other reason, most likely than just, uh, you know, get caught kids starting early pitchers starting earlier and their arms kind of running out of gas by uh, their early thirties and, and the same thing on the hitting side. So, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't
0: change it for, for, uh, for anything else. So yes, I am retired. (laughs) I am, you know, a few days ago, a guy that you spent a lot of time competing against, I think through the minors even too, and then into the majors in in the same division, Jay Bruce called it, um, you know, and I, I just wonder how hard it is to know that you played consistently every day for a long time and there's a competition aspect to it, and there's a you know personal uh, aspect to it, of putting up numbers. And you both did that to a certain degree for a very long time. And it's a pretty sudden halt. you know, yep. it's um the game tell you know I, I use this expression with, and I'm talking about Jay Bruce, some you know, I, I use this yep. expression, the game told him he wasn't good enough anymore. And right. it's a lot different than, you know, being a hall of famer who says, you know what, I'm good. I'm going to, I got everything I could. I had a great career. I'm walking away. You guys both had really good careers, but the game told you in different ways that you weren't good enough anymore. How, how hard is that realization to set in?
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, for, for me, my, that, that process really started, um, the off season that I signed with the Yankees and, um, not that i had any big grandiose ideas of how, of getting this long long term contract at that point i had always i played year to year i went through four years of arbitration i always feel like felt like i had a you know the carrot dangling out in front of me as far as one year contracts are concerned and i think that kind of kept me um, pushing in the right direction and, and challenging myself and uh then i i come over to the yankees and and fortunately for me i was put in a really good position to essentially be playing every time there was a righty on, on the mound, whether it was first, second, third, and even bouncing the outfield a little bit. But that mindset, uh, really, in, in early, and obviously the, my first month and a half, and I signed late that year, and my first month and a half with the Yankees were, were hard because, you know, in my brain, I was like, okay, well, I won't be playing as much. Uh, you know, I'll figure this thing out. But when you're going through your day-to-day and you're trying to figure out how to keep yourself sharp, you actually, you haven't gone through that, so you don't know and all of a sudden you you're playing on a Monday and there's three lefties in a row and you're not playing again until Thursday or Friday and you're stepping the box and you're like, wow, my timing is really messed up. I, I, you know, and then you go through this whole process of trying different things with your routine and during the game. And eventually it it comes around, but for me, it took, it took a month and a half. And, um, I was fortunate enough to be able to work through that, but, uh, to, to kind of to in, in the short, in short, yeah, it, it, you, you kind of understand and and know where that's coming from. And you're getting, sometimes you get to the age where, you know, if the Yankees, especially that year were like, Hey, we want you to play seven days a week in my brain. I would have been like, uh, well, okay. I've, (laughs) I've, I've had a back surgery a couple of years ago. I've had some, you know, quad injury, hamstring injury. I'll, I'll do the best I can, but you know, and, and to, to hit off another piece that you said, I kind of call it the, the back of the baseball card theory. Right. You know, and, and that's, uh, are you getting the bulk of at bats? If if you do get the fort- if you are fortunate enough to get those every day at bats as a you know first, second, third year player and solidify yourself in in a, in a lineup and, and on a roster, you know where you're going to be for the most part if you're giving yourself 500 to 650 at bats or plate appearances, right? Outside of injury or or some some kind of unforeseen thing that keeps you out of everyday at bats. You know, you look, at, you look at the back of my baseball card, it's pretty much, you know, 250 to 280 with, you know, this, you know what I mean? So, and then you get to the point where you're not playing as much and you have to kind of change your role and you have to be more adaptive. And you basically try to hang on as long as you can because the, the sport, like you're saying, is telling you, hey, look, you know, you're still valuable, but you're not as valuable as you once were. So uh, if you can do this role to the best of your ability and still be successful doing it. Uh, then you're going to be able to bounce around and hang on. And then, you know, it might get to the point where it just doesn't make sense for you anymore. And and like with Jay, I actually spoke with Jay and I actually lived with Jay last year when I was with the Phillies. Hmm. We uh, Our families weren't there. So we spent a lot of time and I had been getting to the point um, where it was like, you know, I was just kind of hanging on and I was just trying to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a cog with, with, the, with the Phillies last year. And when, when my role changed, when, when they changed the rules to, uh, full-on DH last year, it really hurt me because I was going to be relied upon with the Phillies to p- bounce around a little bit. Well, uh, offensively, they, they're they set up as so that basically they have seven of eight guys in the lineup that never come out of the lineup. So I was given the the unfortunate job of of when somebody needed a break off of Max Scherzer or Jacob deGrom, <laughs> I, I, w- I, w- I was the guy to be thrown in there at first base or third base or whatever. And I was perfectly fine with that but that's when you kind of realize that things are going in the direction and with, with Jay and, and I certainly don't want to speak for him, but I know he was kind of getting to the point where he was, he was feeling uh, like he, he had kind of accomplished everything at the, at the major league level. And he had same thing as me, two young kids at home and, and, you know, 13, 14 years in the big league. So um, I guess to a degree, he probably just kind of hit his breaking point mentally and, and, you know, hats off to him. He was an amazing guy to play against an amazing guy to play with. And, and so, so fortunate to uh, to get to know him,
0: especially at the end of his career, and, and and play with him. The you uh, you ended up basically living out, I think, a dream come true, right? I mean, you know, you played twelve years in the big leagues, and as I said, this is a really good career. It's over thirteen hundred games with six different teams. You hit you two sixty seven over that stretch. You won a silver slugger. But you're a Pittsburgh kid. You grew up in Pittsburgh. And I remember a campaign that TBS used to have when they were promoting Braves games. They used to say, where were you when Sid slid? You, know, <laughs> you were you were seven years old when Sid slid yeah. and broke your heart. Yeah. And then all yeah. those years later, when the Pirates finally came back, you're on the field. There's 40,000 people at PNC Park for the 2013 wildcard game, and you go two for five and yeah. you're helping the Pirates win a playoff game and advance in a playoff series. You know, how, what does that feel like for a kid who grew up where you did?
1: Well, I can tell you that that when Sid Sid Bream slid into home, and actually Sid Bream lives lives around in this area still, oh, yeah. the Pittsburgh area, and you'll see him every once in a while. And every time I see him, I just kind of like <laughs> I give this because i literally i literally was with, <laughs> with my two brothers and sister watching the game in my living room i can remember it like it was yesterday and just bawling my eyes out as a 7 year old kid wow. and you know at at that time i played so much front yard baseball with my my older brothers and 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 knew it even at that time that i wanted to be a major league player so you know it, it, that it, my 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 crusade basically started before that but getting into high school i remember things like Sean Casey hitting the first home run at PNC Park in 2001 and being so mad. I, I was like a sophomore in high school or something like that. And I wasn't able to, to be at that game. And I was supposed to be because one of my games got moved around. Um, and so I was a fan. I was a huge fan growing up. I was a huge fan in high school. And then all of a sudden I get to my senior year and, and, and uh, it looks like I'm falling in this in this range in the first round that the, that the Pirates might be in and get drafted by them, go through the whole uh, minor league process, get to the big leagues. We're essentially a, a hundred-loss team three, four years in a row. They're kind of trying to throw pieces together. Andrew McCutcheon was drafted the the, the year after me, uh, when we kind of moved up and got to Triple A. We started to get a little more talented. Uh, we both got to the big leagues in two thousand nine. Ten was, was was tough in Pittsburgh. Eleven was was tough. All of a sudden, we get to twelve and we start to put some more pieces around and Andrew and I are solidifying ourselves as, as everyday players. And, um, we start to win some games and, in that particular year we fizzled out at the end of the year and going into that thirteen season, we were like, wow, we, I think we have something here. We have some pretty good pitching. They supplemented us with really good veteran players and good veteran presence, uh, guys to, to help us young guys, uh, develop and, and continue to, to learn how to win. And here, there we are in, the, in, in late September of 2013. And we're like, wow, we're going to the playoffs. We, You know, we we were in a tough division with St. Louis and uh, I think Chicago that year was 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 still really competitive. So we didn't win the division, but uh, played in that. Or It was Cincinnati. I'm sorry. Obviously, Cincinnati and playing in that wildcard game. It really was like a culmination of uh, what was 20 years of of losing of team not even being over 500. And to be a part of that, I remember we clinched to not go to go over 500 against the Texas Rangers. I think we, in, in mid September you uh, Darvish was pitching, I think, and we want to, and Gary Cole, I believe was pitching. Oh. And we won a, like a one nothing game. And um, I remember the last out came to me and I threw it the first and I said, give me the ball, give me the ball. <laughs> and, I, and I got the ball back and guys were like, you were just, you know, great. We just won a game. And uh, one of the, my teammates was like, why did you want that ball after the game? And I said, you realize that this is, this is a symbol of, of the last 20 years of under 500 baseball. This, I mean, obviously in the grand scheme of things and, and, and you as somebody that that covers the the Yankees and and being like, that's, that type of stuff's not really important, but you know, we, you want it now you want the championships now. Right. But in Pittsburgh, it had been such a long haul that those 20 years just kind of culminated in that, in that 2013 season. And going into the playoffs, winning that series was incredible to be a part of that. And we, we lose to, to St. Louis in, in game five of, of the division series. And we still really felt like we were moving in the right direction and had a really good team. And um, obviously 14 and 15 were great years and we were in, in tough divisions and and had you know two guys, Arietta and Baumgartner, that really threw well against us in wild card games. And um, so it was just incredible to see how the community rallied around though, just to go to the grocery store or to go, go places, go out to eat. People were so far on board. And, and as a, as a Steeler fan and somebody that that understands kind of that side of it too, because, you know, Steelers football is, is like Yankees baseball in in this region, right? Like, you know, if, if things are good, they're, they're great. If things are in between or bad, they're horrible, right. In, In the minds of fans. So, um, you got it you got a sense of that uh, on the baseball side of things and it was incredibly special and, and something that i i took a lot of pride in and, and my teammates didn't quite understand it because they didn't quite understand the uh you know the the backstory per se yeah. they just knew like oh we haven't been very good for for a while and i was like a, a while i mean there's a couple guys <laughs> in the team that that weren't even alive the last time that we
0: that that we had a winning season so um really really special i'm just picturing you strutting around giant eagle with that shopping cart right now <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sorry, I guess I guess in Pittsburgh it's pronounced John Eagle. I don't uh, Yeah Yeah, I need to the make Eagle. sure I get that right. Yeah. Hey, did you ever feel like <laughs> you know when you I mean you played with some big market teams, but you spent a majority of your career in Pittsburgh, and that window was it was short, I guess, in the grand scheme, but it was a pretty good window of opportunity yeah. for you guys. You won ninety-four games one year, you won ninety-eight another year. Did you feel like the deck was stacked against you as players and as a team because of the whole major league system and the payrolls you're up against? Or did you feel like, you know, cyclically you were now in a window where you had the chance and you had the players to do it?
1: Yeah, I I, I kind of feel like it's a little bit of both, right? So, you know, obviously the, the, uh, the way the system is set up in baseball, you know, the, the bigger your market, the bigger your, 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 your TV deals are, your bigger fan base, you know, you're going to be able to afford uh, bigger name players in, in, in Pittsburgh and in places like Pittsburgh, you uh, at least right now, you're just, you, you're not really able to do that. So you're really dependent on the development of players in the minor league system, and then supplementing those guys with the, the, the right uh, veteran pieces to come in, whether it's on a short term or long term. And, and we knew that you, you knew that uh, in Pittsburgh and we felt like there was a window uh, where the core was essentially, you know, myself, Andrew McCutcheon, Starling Marte and Gregory Blanco, And we supplemented guys like uh, AJ Burnett and Russell Martin and Garrett Cole was, was very young at the time coming up. And you're looking around and you're like, wow, there's, there's not many holes in this team. And we're essentially playing under the, the Tampa Bay Ray and Oakland model. And, um, it, 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 it can work it, and it has worked in the past and uh, you have to have a lot of things go right. You have to have a lot of health. You have to have guys that are, that, uh, you know, everybody basically pulling their weight and, and playing at their numbers to, to kind of give yourself that opportunity because, you know, you're not able to go out there and, and, and get the, and, and throw the hundred million dollar contracts at guys. And that's just the way baseball set up. And, and a part of you as a player feels like you, you wish that there was a way to, completely even even the, the 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 score but it's just not how it's set up and you know as players you fight for the you're fighting for that free agency you're fighting for for your rights as a player to to make that big contract when you get through your arbitration years and um guys a lot of times don't get to that point and then you have guys uh you know the the Garrett Coles of the world and and, and Trevor Bowers and some of these guys that are getting huge contracts so um, you hope that you can, that at the end of the day and as this thing moves closer to this new bargaining agreement and even past that 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 uh, baseball uh, the owners and the teams and the players are, are able to find a way to kind of uh, bridge that gap to to figure out a way to, to you know not basically not incentivize some of these teams to, to be uh, on the very very bottom of the spectrum because uh, you know they want the first second third pick of the, of the draft right and uh, that's that's something that's um, that that's uh, you know that's in my opinion is really important for the game moving forward because uh, you know you hate to see essentially twelve teams in the league that are really going for it, and you know the other the other eighteen teams not really going for it and there's just so many in my opinion there's so many there's so few teams in the that are living in the middle nowadays right. Yeah. There's so, there's so many teams and there's a, there's a domino effect with this, right? And, you, and anybody that watches the offseason sees that, okay, why, there, there's, there's players that are kind of in the middle that aren't getting what maybe they should, um, and why are they still sitting there? And you go, well, because the teams at the top have already kind of poached the players that have, have basically gotten 50% of what they thought they would get to this point, yeah. and then everybody else that's kind of taking the table scraps per se – are, are ending up – they don't want to end up with a rebuilding team, whether it's a one-year, two-year deal or whatever they might get. So you you wish there was a way to, to uh, you know, not incentivize but not punish teams that, that aren't necessarily going for it, but at least teams that are giving their themselves shots and, and living somewhat in the middle. And a lot of people will say, well, that's stupid. I mean, why would you want to live in the middle? Well, you know, we don't know what – what uh, there's obviously the, the league is pushing for more – uh, more teams in the playoffs and, and more opportunities for teams to, to just get yourself in the playoffs. And that's really all you want as a player is, is that opportunity because anything can happen once, once you get in the playoffs. So we'll see where it goes from there. But, but, but more than that, you know, baseball is, 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 uh, is, is uh, you know, s- still so much fun to watch when, you, when you're seeing every single guy that, that pitches basically throwing 95 to 100 yeah. and, you know, the Aaron Judges of the world hitting all, you know, all these home runs and, and so on and so forth. You know, it's it's exciting, but I think you know. Hopefully, there's a way to
0: continue to move it in the right direction. You know, you just actually great transition to what I wanted to ask you about next. Your career is a, a wonderful arc for thinking about where the game is right now. You, you started in 2009 and you finished in 2020. Hitting got a lot harder in that <laughs> stretch. It feels like, at least the numbers bear it out, and everybody who talks about it right. says it's just harder now. Um, just focusing in on that one aspect of it, how did it change from the time you broke in to the time you finished?
1: Well, when I'm asked that, that similar question, it, it, in, in my brain, it basically, it, this is how it goes. You know, in the, it, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, essentially, if you were going into a series, it, three of the, you know, if you play a three game, four game, two, three, four game, whatever it may be, there was a good chance that you, what you were going to see from the starter was sinker, slider, changeup, change right? And they wanted you to hit the ball on the ground. They wanted you to, 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 to make quick outs. They they, they they weren't concerned about pitch counts for the most part if, guy, if guys were throwing strikes. And it was easier to put the ball in play, right? Get into 14, 15, 16, you're seeing more guys throwing, four seamers at the top of the zone, cutters, uh, you know, basically – that, that downward X has, has moved almost to a sideways or upward X, right? And it became more difficult to hit because uh, guys, were, guys are essentially they're, – they're trying to lift the ball. They're trying to get the ball in the air. Whereas in, in early in my career, in 9, 10, 11, 12, it was like, okay, this guy's going to sink the ball away from you. Let's, let's eliminate trying to hit the ball, to, to pull the ball. Let's stay in the middle of the field to the opposite field, make him throw strikes, make him get the ball up. And, and you knew that if you stayed with that approach, you were going to be pretty good because there wasn't guys throwing 95 to 97 mile an hour sinkers. You, you know, there were there were guys. Everybody was 80, every single chart you looked at was, you know, I, and Derek Lowe always comes about right like 89 to 92 <laughs> sinker, uh, you know, 84 to 87 mile an hour slider, 82 to 84 mile an hour changeup. Right. It was it was just common across the board. And then it became, well, did that guy keep the ball down that night and throw strikes? Well, it's just not like that anymore. And when you get when you're watching a game now and you see balls at the top of the zone, breaking balls over the top, cutters, uh, you know, two seamers that are running off the plate, and, and everything being atop the zone, and it's foul ball, foul ball, foul ball, strikeout, walk, you know, it it makes you, you can just tell that it's it's just a, a much different uh, philosophy. And whether it's right or wrong. I think we're in we're in a, a spot now where it's going to be like this for a little while, and I'm not and and I'm convinced that it'll probably start turning back the other direction. You may start seeing the loogies come back, right? And the and, okay. and the lefty specialists that are that are throwing 82 to, to 86, but they're uh, spotting the ball and they're getting guys out in front. Because it, in my opinion, it's it's less about covering you know 90 94 to 99 on a daily basis, and more about uh, you know, staying in the strike zone and hitting hitting strikes and being able to 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 hit balls at the top of the zone. You know, for for so long, guys were not you know not really taught to hit balls at the top of the zone. Now they're they're working on that. They're trying to figure out ways to to cover that. So um, you know, it's 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 really interesting. But like you said, I feel like I was fortunate enough to see to see kind of a lot of different aspects in my time in the big leagues, and I saw that evolution. And you felt it coming and you had to try to adapt, and I think the guys that did a, a better job of adapting to that, and, and in my brain, my, my walks went up as my career went on because I, I understood that guys were trying to uh, get you to expand your zone. And, and so, you know, my strikeouts went up as my career went on, but my walks also went up because you had to be more cognizant of how you were being pitched, and it was less about expanding down early in my career and more about expanding up. And you just had to understand that it just more difficult to hit velo at the top of the zone than it is, you know, laying off sliders and breaking balls in the dirt. In, in in my opinion,
0: I think another thing, and I just looked this up to confirm it, that really changed how the game is played, um, and it makes me think like this is just this just isn't the same game, and I think that's what's really hard for uh, everybody to understand. You, your numbers went significantly up the third time you faced a pitcher versus the first time you faced him, and the fourth as well. Um, so now you're at a point where you know, you're you not facing the same guy four times in a game. Right, this is right. completely different. And as much as we like to compare eras, and I mean, and you're as good a guy at that as anybody because you have a father who played in the big leagues in a different right. era. So as much as we like to compare that, it feels to me like just looking at that particular aspect of it, like how a hitter does facing a pitcher the third and fourth time. And the fact that never happens anymore. It's yeah. almost not fair. Cause this is not the same game to me, Neil.
1: Yeah. And, and you see a lot of, uh, you see a lot of kind of surviving uh, and it, with guys in the box, when, when I watch the game and I, and, and, uh, not being an everyday player over the course of the last couple of years, I, I got a front row seat to just kind of see how guys are, are approaching. And like I said, you have a lot of pitchers now that are just 95 to hundred, and they're just going to challenge you until you can prove that you can hit it. Right. And, but as during my part of my career, it was like, like I was saying, here's your sinker, here's your slider, here's your change up. You know, we're going to work in, out, up, down, try to set you up as, as, as a pitcher, and you, you started to learn like, like you were saying over when you're facing a guy two, three, four, five times uh, over the course of a season, over a course of a career, that the pattern was very similar because guys were going to live and die by their, by their best stuff and try to keep the ball down and, and so on and so forth. Well, in my opinion, and, and nowadays, you know, guys like, like Tyler Glasnow, they can just, and, and Gary Cole, they can just, they can just completely dominate you with three pitches in, in three upper nineties fastballs. and, there's not as much setting guys up nowadays as, as maybe there was, and this is, is not that long ago. And not that it's right or wrong, but it just – it changes your philosophy. And I found myself having a harder time toward the end of my career really diving into an approach basically for that reason because I, I, used, to, I used to always feel like my first at bat against a guy or, or, or during a game, if I saw every one of their pitches, if he was a three-pitch guy or a four-pitch guy, if I was somehow able to see – all three or all four of his pitches in my first at bat, it was going to make my second and third bat much easier and much easier to approach. And that pretty much stuck true until this, this, this evolution started to occur and guys were throwing so much harder and it basically became, okay, I need to cover 95 plus, but also understand that he's got a 75 mile an hour curve ball. <laughs> and so I just need to be good in certain spots of the zone and not expand. And so that that mindset completely changed, and you stepped into the box and you said, "I, I don't want to be. I don't. If, if I get a 95 mile an hour heater right down right down the middle of the plate right here, I don't want to be late because he may elevate that a little bit more the next pitch, and it might be foul ball, and it's 0-2, and I haven't see, even seen any of his other pitches." And so that's kind of how how my mindset uh, worked uh, as my career went along. It almost went to a survival mode, wow. and, and and of course that could that could. That could, uh, there could be so many different aspects of that, me slowing down as a player in all that. So I'm very cognizant of that too. But at the same time, you know, you see guys getting, you know, much more overpowered nowadays, in my opinion, because of the stuff that guys have now and and how hard they throw. And there's much less setting guys up and and coming in, out, up, down. It's, It's go after them until
0: they can prove that they can handle your stuff. No such thing as hitters counts is, saying, is things that I've heard a lot lately. Like that's <laughs> right. you know, all, the old familiar patterns are they're, they're all gone. Uh, right. Listen, you're um, you're a good guy to ask about this, I think, because you you like the game still. You mentioned there are a lot of different innovations people are talking about, and they're trying out the at the independent and minor league levels a lot of different yep. things that they're trying to just bring more action into the game. Uh, it's harder because, as you said, they're trying not to let you hit the ball, and that really takes a lot of the action out of the game. What's something – is there any of the – are there any of the proposed changes or things that they're experimenting with, like moving the mound back or bigger bases or things that they're doing to try to get people to run more? Are there any of those that you've kind of latched on to and said, yeah, you know what, that's a really good idea? Or is there something else that you've thought of that you'd you'd think would – help the game moving forward yeah you
1: know i'm not i'm not a big proponent for for messing with the the distance on the mound i I think that's an aspect of the game where where guys have to adapt as hitters and and pitchers i'd hate to see that happen because i feel like that would uh even even a, a small amount you would see you know guys having having issues you know trying to add velocity and things like that and it would lead maybe to more injuries and I, I like the I like the the, the bases being a little, a little a little bigger that you know you see a couple injuries every year of guys slipping over bases and things like that so to have a bigger base and a much lower base and kind of those things I, I like that um, I've, I've always had a soft spot spot in, in, in my heart and I'm not even a pitcher but I've always had a soft spot for when you know you're playing in extra innings and all of a sudden the game goes 17 18 innings and some poor kid uh, that has options left that was up yeah. it's july and he's been he's been up for the entire season to that point the poor guy throws sucks up four innings and he's gone for three weeks and you're like man that that's he he drew he drew a, a short straw so yes. i'm not to, i'm not totally convinced that the that the the, the extra inning rules of, of starting a guy on second base is is necessarily the right thing but i do also think that there the, the the steamroll effect of the whole thing whether it's like you know start a guy on first base and, and, or I, I don't I don't know. I haven't spent enough time kind of thinking about it. And it, it is, it is nice, uh, you know, because most of these games now are not going more than 10, 11, 12 innings at the, at the most, just because of how it's set up. But at the same time, you're like, Oh, you know, there was a guy in second. <laughs> you had, you had three shots to, to, to get a base hit and score a guy. Yeah. And if your pitcher comes out the next inning and strikes two guys out and gets a fly ball, you, you win, you know, did you really, did you really work to get that, that win? So, but I, I am I am super sensitive to the to the fact that um, you know the way uh, the way baseball is set up, especially for the reliever types, that you know guys get guys just get screwed all the time uh, from from those, you know two games in a row where you play twelve innings, one night and fifteen innings the next, and all of a sudden you have four new pitches in your bullpen. Yeah. and sometimes those guys those guys come up and pitch better than the guys that went down and they don't even get back up and you're like, Oh man, that sucks. <laughs> so, and and there's a, there's a lot of different uh, things that are kind of being worked on that, that I think are, 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 are pretty, uh, pretty helpful. And, and I, and I am on board with the trying to figure out a way to speed the game up. So that's, that's probably the first and foremost thing that that I would like to see because especially now as a fan and I, and I watch a lot of uh, the MLB network games and the pirate games as a, as a local guy and you're turning around in the fifth inning, and it's and it, it, on most nights, and it's two two and a half hours plus, and yeah. you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, and and you and you're thinking about I have a four year old, and I took took her down to, to opening day for the Pirates, and and it was great, but you get to the fourth inning, and your kid's running around all the play, and you're like, well, you know, if it was the seventh inning, you might be able to stick it out for the next <laughs> couple but it's the it's the fourth inning, and I think a lot of a lot of fans have that same reaction. They want to go to games, they want to sit down and watch a, an entire ball game. But you know it's it's life it's gets becoming the way. Increased, it's becoming increasingly harder.
0: So Yeah. With the um I, I'm with you on the extra innings thing. I kinda like it just because for what you said, one of the big reasons, a guy who gives up a walk-off homer on the first pitch will keep his job in the big leagues. He'll still be there the next day. <laughs> the guy who threw four scoreless right. gets his pay cut eighty percent and sent right. back to triple A. And you right. know, that's the inequity there and um, I, like th- I like that it spurs action because a lot of times, yeah. even though we like the romanticism of 16, 17 in the games, there's a lot of nothing happening for an extra hour and a half, <laughs> and I think we all right. just want to see something happen. So um, right. I want to tailor a couple things, one to a New York audience and one to your Pittsburgh audience, actually more of a national sure. audience. But um, the New York audience knows that uh, they need Garrett Cole and Jameson Tyone to be very good this year. Um, you know them both pretty well. What do you? Uh, what can you tell Yankee fans about what? I think they know a little more certainty what they see in Cole. Um, but sure. your experience with him, and maybe what you think Jamison Tyone is capable of.
1: Well, Garrett is is one of my best friends, not even as a baseball player, but as a uh, as a person. And, and we spend a lot of time talking to one another, and uh, we've gone on many family trips to, together. Uh, our, our wives are really good friends, and and so I can tell you that this guy cares probably more than, than, than he should. And that, and I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a a bad way, but this, this guy is just be off the charts competitive. His first week in the big leagues. I mean, this guy was, was in the dugout on the top step in his cleats, just in case, you know, the game went extra innings or the pitcher got knocked out early and they needed a, a hitter to not burn a bench guy. You know what I mean? That's the type of guy he is. He's so cerebral. He understands the game. He understands his arsenal on, on, on what the things he does well, the things he doesn't do well, and he cares so much. And I always get a kick out of, out of when he's when he's pitching and he essentially sh- strikes out the side and the last guy he the, you know the third the, the third out he strikes the guy out and it looks like he's mad at himself because he didn't hit his spot, but he still <laughs> blew a guy away with ninety seven. And I'm always I'm I'm always shaking my head like, just go back in the dugout, you know what I mean? Go <laughs> go back in the dugout, get your get your drink of water and go back out there like. You're you're one of the best pitchers this this game has seen in a long time, and, and and you're so impressive. But you don't you don't have to be as perfect as you're you're trying to be. But that's his personality, that's his, his character, and and I hope that the the Yankee fans appreciate it. And with with JMO, he is uh, he and Garrett are so close too, and they and he's really rubbed off on, on uh, uh, Garrett has really rubbed off on J-Mo over his years, and his arsenal is is. Is really really impressive too, and I think that he's still kind of uh, working his way back. These these injuries have been um, something that have, have have I think been more of a, a mental uh, piece for him to get over. But this is a guy that has has front of the rotation type of stuff and can can get a lot of outs. And I think that as his pitch count continues to grow and his arsenal continues to get sharper, you're going to see this guy getting better as the season goes along and. And outside of any, you know, any sort of, uh, of, of of health issue, you you've got you guys have got yourself the, the Yankees have got themselves a uh, not a diamond in the rough per se because he was so good in Pittsburgh, but you know it's been it was it was stop go for for the last three four years for this guy just because of his, of his, his injuries. So um, my my hope for him is that he's able to to stay healthy because a full season in, in 20, 25, 30 starts for this guy is a good thing
0: for this or for for the for the Yankees organization. All right. And uh, one more, I mentioned this, this is really for the Pittsburgh people, but I think it's more for the national people. And I know this story has been told a lot, but I'm going to take a chance that there are a few people listening who haven't really heard the full version of it. Um, you know, you grew up in Pittsburgh uh, you were born, what, 13 years after Roberto Clemente passed away, right? Yep. But I'm not exaggerating. You literally owe your life to Roberto Clemente um, yep. because of, the interactions between him and your father, who was a was a pitcher in the '70s, would you? I, I just like hearing you guys tell the story. Would you Would you mind yeah. telling it for people who might not have heard it? The connection between Roberto, your father, and you.
1: Sure. Yeah. And and you know, obviously, the the story of of, of Roberto's plane going down in Puerto Rico is is you know well-documented everybody anybody that's a baseball fan knows that story but my dad was actually playing in Puerto Rico at that time and um, you know the earthquake in in Nicaragua uh, happened in in December of that year and um, you know guys around the league uh, it was going going into New Year's and guys around around that Puerto Rican Winter League said you know uh, Roberto had said hey I'm going to put a plane together Uh, we're going to throw some goods in this in this plane and we're going to go and there were, you know, some guys that said, Hey, well, you know, it's just a, you're just going to go and come back. It's just a day trip. Why don't we go with you? You know, we don't have girlfriends. We don't have wives. We're here by ourselves. We're not playing. We have off uh, between Christmas and new year's. And my dad was one of those guys and, and, and uh, you know, him telling the story of him getting, getting to the airport and loading this plane and, and Roberto basically going, well, Hey guys, this plane is too full. And they were like, no, we'll sit on boxes. We'll no big deal. We'll play some cards. We'll we'll drink some beers, you know, no big deal and him being adamant to like, you know, no, this is, j- it's just going to be me and the, in the pilot. Uh, it's new year's, go back and celebrate. Um, and that plane taking off and going down and literally my dad being at the airport along with several other players and Roberto not allowing those guys to get on the, on the plane has saved my life. And, you know, fast forward, there were just some things that, that, uh, were crazy to me and, and, uh, Roberto, Roberto, he his name it was Roberto Clemente Walker, right? He yeah. used the, walk, the Walker name, uh, which you know you don't really see it typically anywhere, but you see it on his bust at, 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 at Cooperstown and some of those things. My dad's name is Robert Thomas Walker, yeah. So his his name, his first name, he goes by Tom, but his first name is Robert Walker. So that's weird. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. And
1: uh, you know, once I got to the big leagues and we started to have uh clemente day around the league but in pittsburgh it was obviously a little more special the clementes would come into town the boys in vera would come into town and, and we'd go to local schools and we would uh you know promote the game of baseball but also teach the story of roberto clemente and his humanitarianism and and everything that he stood for and everything that he did for not just baseball but the, the latin community and, and and at a time in, in history where there was still a lot of sensitivity toward uh with racism and so on and so forth um, he was so integral to, 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 to everything that's going on in the game right now and, 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 and uh, you know, in, in, in society in general. And to see guys on a daily basis in the big leagues and, and how much they appreciate not just the Latin culture but uh, what, what Roberto stands for is is something that really warms my heart. And I was so lucky. I mean, I got a 21 – I'm playing for the Pirates. I got a 21-foot wall in right, in right field, and, and I get to run out of the dugout at third base and – and, and go over there, and, and there wasn't many days that, that that I wouldn't be standing for the national anthem and think to myself, "Holy cow! Like I am so lucky to 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 not just be here, but to have my path of, of getting to the big leagues, to be a part of this organization, with my connection to my dad, and probably the culmination of of, of the whole story for me personally." And, and set aside my dad's relationship, Clemente Day, two thousand fourteen, I believe. Uh, September and I'm sitting on 20 home runs. We're playing the Boston Red Sox on Clemente day. I think my second or third at bat, I hit a home run just over the 21 foot wall for my 21st first home run the yeah. season on Clemente day. Yeah. And no, no joke. I mean, it, people, people can tell you when you hit a home run, you usually not think anything. You're, you're excited. You're proud. You run around the bases. I hit that thing and it just barely got over and I hit first base and I, and I have goosebumps now just telling the story, but wow. I hit first base and, and I have goosebumps and I come into the dugout and players, players understand this too. They were like, Oh my gosh, Vera was just in the dugout before the first inning. His boys were in here. They're going, you just hit your 21st home run. And if you don't believe in, 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 in uh, you know, supernatural or, or whatever you want to call it, a higher being. I had never felt more like I had, you know, Roberto Clemente was, was with me on that day. And I felt like he was with me every day. I, st- I, st- I took the field at PNC park and you know, my dad gets extremely emotional every time he tells a story and us in the family have heard that story so many times. So we're, we're, we're numb to it, but to, to see people's reaction that have never heard the story is, is really incredible. So you're absolutely right. I, I owe my, my entire life. And that's weird to say, but I owe my entire life to, to Clemente and, and, I'll never stop being somebody that that supports getting his number retired completely across the league. Um, I think that's really important. I think that, uh, that this is a guy that that uh, any player should 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 mold his game after if they if if they have the ability to. And uh, I couldn't be more proud or to to have played for the Pirates organization and to be um, you know in the same organization that Roberto Comente came up in.
0: And that's exactly why I wanted you to tell the story again. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. My thanks again to Neil Walker, as well as his father Tom, who I got to meet a couple of years back. It was a thrill for me to tell Tom that his was one of the first baseball cards I can remember owning when I was a kid back in the 1970s. And if you want to hear more about that relationship between the Walkers and the Clementes, go check out the Talking 21 podcast with Danny Torres. Both Neil and Tom discussed that at more length in a recent episode of that podcast that is dedicated to the memory of Roberto Clemente. Neil Walker will find himself in the game again at some point, whether it's as a coach or a broadcaster or whatever. Someone who has the deep connection to the game and still enjoys it as a fan and a viewer is exactly who should have a say in moving the game forward. If you're new here, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive. My recent conversations have included another Pittsburgh great, Dave Parker, who talks about his life in his new book, Cobra. You might also enjoy a conversation with John Odell from the Baseball Hall of Fame about the 1981 baseball card explosion that changed the entire hobby forever. Please make sure to hit subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on What's in Your Podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive.